Tonight we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we look at our text for tonight, we are reminded of the beautiful seaport of Neapolis where Paul first landed on European soil, a seaport, a town now called Kavala. But this is where Paul landed uh, as the gospel was preached for the first time on European soil in response to what is commonly called the Macedonian uh, call uh, that was answered by Paul and those who were with him and uh, the gospel was preached and the church established on European soil first at Philippi. And the background of the establishment of the church we read about in Acts chapter 16 where we have Lydia, uh, the first convert, she and her household there, and then the Philippian jailer and his household. And so much to learn from those wonderful accounts of conversion in the book of Acts, including those who began uh, the church at Philippi. We have already uh, gotten into the text and uh, have studied the first eight verses of uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1. And uh, by way of a brief review, uh, the Apostle Paul had expressed great confidence in uh, the brethren at Philippi. Uh, he was confident that, as verse 6 denotes, the one who had begun a good work in them, that would have been God the Father, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the day of Jesus Christ, having an obvious reference to the second coming of Christ. Paul said in uh, verse 7, it's right for me to think this of you all, to have this kind of confidence, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. We've mentioned before that uh, the relationship that Paul sustained to the church here at Philippi was a beautiful, tender, very close relationship. He had tremendous confidence in them. He loved them very, very deeply and appreciated them so much for their faithfulness, for their fellowship with him in the gospel. For uh, over in chapter 4, he will mention that they had sent once and again to um, relieve his um, financial needs, supplying his uh, needs uh, while he was in prison, especially, and of course he's writing this epistle from a Roman prison uh, cell, uh, one of the prison uh, epistles that he writes. Now tonight, as we look at three verses, we're going to tie them back to verse 6, really, that we've already studied, where Paul, as we've just mentioned, said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, I am confident that you are going to finish the course that you have begun. And God is going to certainly do His part. Uh, he will supply uh, His Word. He will supply all that you need. But, of course, uh, man has his part to play. God will supply every spiritual need. We have that confidence and that assurance because I hold in my hand that which supplies every spiritual need that we have. All Scripture given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for, remember it, every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
And so God has done his part for us from the standpoint of supplying his word. But we also know that God does his part through his providence today, not in working miracles in our lives because there's no need for miracles. The word of God has been confirmed by the miracles that were performed, and God's providence, that is his working through natural law to meet our needs, uh, is always uh, with us, and we are always assured of that providence. And as we've mentioned before, even when God was working through the miraculous, as in Joseph's case, there's, um, there, he was also working through providence in such a significant way that Joseph's life is a classic study in the field of providence. And in the book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned, and no miracle is performed, and yet the providence of God is evident there. And so we are reminded that even when miracles were needed before this book was confirmed for us, God was still working through providence. As if to say, when the time comes when miracles are no longer needed and no longer performed, don't think that I'm not still working in your life, child of God, because I am. How? Through the non-miraculous realm of providence. And God will do his part through the supplying of his all-sufficient word and through his providence to help us do his part to help us finish our course. But we have to do our part. We have to begin well, but obviously we have to continue and then finish well the Christian race, the Christian fight, the Christian walk, the various figures under which the Christian life is viewed in Scripture. But let me suggest to you that in verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1, we find the ingredients and the result of using those ingredients that will allow us, just as Paul knew it would allow the Philippians to finish their course, it will allow us to finish our course successfully. And to be confident in the day of Christ when we stand before him, in other words, in judgment, that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What are those ingredients? Well, let's look at them. They begin in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1. Verse 9 reads, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Here we have it. Summarized beautifully in a very succinct fashion, the ingredients that we need to be able to live the kind of life that ultimately will bring the approval of God and Christ in the judgment. Notice it. And this I pray. Paul's fervent prayer for them in the finishing of that which had begun well and which he had confidence would end well is going to require some things. Well, prayer obviously is understood here because the Apostle Paul says, I'm praying for you. And in expressing that and in giving admonition after admonition regarding prayer to the Thessalonians, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing, the Apostle Paul, by admonition and by example, makes it abundantly clear that prayer is an essential ingredient in our finishing that which we have begun. And without a fervent and effective and constant prayer life, a strong prayer life, then we're going to be weak indeed, weak to the point of failing 
to finish. So in mentioning his prayer for them, in the very mention of that, he reminds them and us to pray. To pray fervently, to pray sincerely, to pray regularly, and to understand and appreciate the power of prayer in our lives. So we could say here when he says this, I pray, that prayer is really the first ingredient that is mentioned here. But there's another. I pray that your love, the word for love there is the agape word. There are different words that are used in the New Testament for love. The agape love is the highest form of love. It is an all-encompassing love in that it is a love that is enjoined upon us even toward our enemies. That's right. We are to agape our enemies. We're to love our enemies. Does that mean we have a, a warm, fuzzy feeling, so to speak, toward those who would do us in if they could? No. The Lord never enjoined that kind of warm feeling toward those who are truly enemies of the cross and enemies of Christians. But he did say that we are to desire for them the best, that is, the agape love. That's the agape love as it is often used in Scripture. It's the love that loves based upon the value, the intrinsic value of the object that is loved. Well, the object of our love, even in the case of our enemies, is a soul. There's a soul, an immortal soul, in the body of every living human being, even our enemies. And Paul understood and appreciated, as did the Lord himself, as he enjoined prayer for our enemies, the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, said, in fact, if you don't uh, treat uh, your enemies any better than uh, the heathen treat their enemies, what more are you doing than the heathen are doing? If you love your brethren only, what more do you do than the heathen do? The heathen do that. Those who don't even claim to be followers of God will generally do good to those who do good to them. They'll reciprocate. But our responsibility as children of God is to love even our enemies in the sense that we desire for them and we work for them that which is best for them. We do all that we can to bring them to a saving knowledge of the truth. But love here is enjoined upon the Philippians with superlatives that are added that really cannot be measured. Think about it. That your love may what? Abound. There's a superlative. Not that your love may exist. Not that you have a love that is measurable, that does exist, that can be ascertained to be there. That you do love but that you have an abounding love. The idea here of abounding is self-explanatory, really. Abound means just what we think it should mean, abound. Literally, to overflow. In other words, to be present in great quantity, tremendous quantity, overflowing quantity, filled up and overflowing. That's the, that's the measure of love that Paul enjoins upon the Philippians and therefore upon all of us as Christians in this and every other generation. We're to manifest that kind of love, a, an abounding love. 
But notice that he does not, he does not end the admonition there, although to say love that abounds would be certainly a tremendous degree and measure of love, but he adds something, more, still more, still more. In other words, you've already got an overflowing love with the word abound. That's inherent in the meaning of the word abound, an overflowing love, a tremendous quantity of love. But Paul adds to that another superlative, more, more, that your love may abound more, still more. But he doesn't stop there. He adds another more to it, still more and more. Well, as we have said before, it is obvious from this and other passages that could be cited that we don't reach a plateau, if you will, where love is concerned and say, well, I've got a sufficient amount of love now. I don't need to be concerned about loving more because I love enough. This basically says you don't ever love enough <laughs> or you should constantly be striving to intensify and increase your love. And do we not see that that serves as a tremendous insurance policy, if you will, spiritually? Because if I am really applying myself to love my brothers and sisters in Christ more and more and to abound more and more in that love, and if I am trying to abound more and more in love for all men, then what are the realistic possibilities that I'm going to become a troublemaker? Not, not going to happen, really, is it? Not if I am really concentrating and focusing on loving the way Paul enjoins love here upon, upon Christians, then um, it's going to be difficult for me to act in such a way or to speak in such a way that is going to run counter to what I'm trying to achieve in fulfilling this privilege, really, to love more and more every day that I live as a Christian. Now, what happens when every member of the congregation has it as his or her goal to practice an abounding and increasing love that abounds and increases more and more? What kind of congregation do we have when every member is doing that? Uh, it's the kind of place you want to be every time the doors are open, isn't it? It's the kind of atmosphere that that others in the community, others learn about and appreciate. And that's why we must ever strive to maintain that kind of atmosphere here at White Oak. That's why we must always, and every congregation, and every individual, and every congregation throughout our great brotherhood should strive to love more and more with an abounding, overflowing love. But you see... While there are those who would say, oh, amen to that. We just need to love, and that's all we do need to do. We don't need to be concerned about law. We need to be concerned about love. We need to be loving people. And uh, as loving people, we're not going to get concerned about, uh, about what this or that individual is doing with his or her life or this or that congregation is doing in terms of practices that may be counter and contrary to the doctrine of Christ. No, you see, love doesn't cover. The love doesn't cover everything. I realize James talks about love covering a multitude of sins, but not without repentance, obviously. 
James doesn't say love. Love will take care of sin whether a person repents of sin or not. In other words, love doesn't offset sin. Love doesn't offset the need for knowledge and discernment of God's Word, does it? Because look what he writes next. That you, that your love may abound still more and more, but look at it. In what? In, coupled with, tied to, knowledge of this book. And so it's not an either-or situation. It's not a question of our being such a loving congregation that we're not that concerned about doctrine. You can't be a loving congregation without being concerned about doctrine. The two go hand in hand. You can't be a loving individual without being concerned about what this book says. And Paul makes that abundantly clear right here in the space of the same verse, doesn't it? Love more and more in what? Knowledge. And the word knowledge there is the word that means precise, absolute knowledge. Not a casual knowledge, not a general knowledge, but an absolute, precise knowledge of the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of His kingdom, the church. In other words, it is love that is tied to an effort to obtain the most perfect knowledge that we can obtain by applying ourselves to the study of God's Word. And so for the Christian, it's not a question of being asked, uh, do you know the Bible? Well, I know. I've got some, I have a pretty good idea. I've got a note, kind of an overview of the generalities of it. No, that's not, that's not the, the way the Christian responds. You can respond that way. If you ask me uh, my knowledge about um, engines in a car, I would say, I have no knowledge. <laughs> I can't even tell you that I have a spattering of knowledge, except that I know it's in there and it runs. When it runs, I'm happy, and when it doesn't run, I call Ron Payne or Tommy Leslie or somebody like that to uh, get either help me or get somebody who can. I know nothing about that. But you know that there are fields where we can have some general knowledge, and we don't have to be concerned about not ever progressing beyond that general casual knowledge because it's not crucial to our welfare. But that's not true when it comes to this. We cannot be satisfied to go through our lives with nothing more than a casual knowledge or a general knowledge of the Word of God. Specific knowledge. Absolute knowledge. That's what this word knowledge means here. And something else is added. And all discernment. All discernment. The King James says judgment here. The idea of discernment, being able to discern, being able to understand, being able to render judgment that is proper judgment based upon a precise knowledge. You see, you can't render proper judgment if your knowledge of the book is so general and spotty that it will not enable you to render that judgment. I've got to do all that I can to apply myself to be able to grow in knowledge, grow in grace and knowledge, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, so that I will be strong to resist temptation, so that I can be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks a reason of the hope that is in me, yet with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15. There are all sorts of passages that make it absolutely incumbent upon us to apply ourselves constantly 
to a greater knowledge for our own welfare and to be able to help others. So, in very succinct fashion, these are ingredients that are absolutely essential to finishing what you have begun if you're a Christian tonight. You're going to have to increase and abound in your love more and more, but it's got to be tied to a precise knowledge, a growing knowledge of God's Word, and the ability as a result of that kind of knowledge to render proper judgment, to discern, to discern. Now, when you have these things, what are you going to be able to do? Paul tells us that in verse 10. That, that, in order that. In other words, if you've got those things and you're continuing to add those things and to increase in these qualities that are mentioned in verse 9 and so many others that are uh, elsewhere mentioned as in 2 Peter 1 with the Christian graces, but here's a succinct summary as we said in verse 9. More and more love, knowledge, discernment, that, so that, so that, what? So that you may approve the things that are excellent. And that word, approve, literally means the idea of testing, testing, putting them to a test. In fact, it's a, it's a word that was used um, in relation to the testing of metals, precious metals, to determine whether or not the metal was pure and was, was what it was purported to be. The means of testing metals, in this case, that we might be able to test or approve, put to the test, the things that are what? Excellent, as the New King James says. Literally, the idea is those things that differ, that differ. What are those things that differ? Right and wrong. Right and wrong are different. How do I know right and wrong? I know right and wrong by a love for the truth, an increasing, abounding love for truth and for each other that will lead me to a precise knowledge and proper understanding and judgment that will enable me to ascertain, to test those things that differ out here in the world or even in the church at times and determine is this something that, that I can live with, so to speak, or is this something I have to stand against? How am I going to know that? How am I going to know the difference between something that may be simply a matter of judgment and expediency, it's neither here nor there, whether we do it or not do it, or whether it's a matter of absolute crucial doctrine? The only way is to be able to test or approve the things that are excellent, and that gets us back to verse 9, and acquiring those qualities that will enable me to do that. Don't you want to be able to know that you know? That you don't have to spend your life speculating about whether this practice is right or this practice is wrong? And doesn't the very admonition here tell us that we don't have to spend our lives like that? Doesn't this admonition tell us that we can know right from wrong? that we can test those things that differ and we can determine whether they're right or wrong? Think about what the world in general is telling us today in that regard. What is truth anyway? Pilate asked that question apparently in, 
in insincere fashion long ago standing in front of the very Son of God. After Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? I can almost hear the tone. What is truth? And then he left, walked away from the living truth, the living water, the very Son of God himself. And that was just the beginning of people who've walked away from the Son of God and have said, as did Pilate, in effect, what is truth? Oh, no, they haven't walked away from him face to face as Pilate had the opportunity to be face to face with him. But they've walked away from this. They've walked away from this and have said, what is truth anyway? Can we really know the truth? Is truth really absolute or is it worth knowing if it is absolute? That's the world increasingly, it seems, in which we live tonight. But we can know. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't tell us to apply ourselves to those things that will enable us to know. Think about it. If you can't know the truth, then why was Paul wasting his breath, so to speak, by saying, do those things that will enable you to know it? The very admonition makes it clear that we can know it, but I don't need to imply that. Uh, I, don't need to, uh, I don't need to deduce that from the implication here. Jesus said it, didn't he? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John eight thirty two. Thanks be to God we can know. Thanks be to God that we may approve the things that are excellent. Now notice further, though that you may be what? Sincere. Now, when we see the word sincere, normally we think about an attitude, and, and certainly that's true in many cases. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit. That's with sincerity as well as in truth. But here, this word sincere has as its meaning clear or pure. And it has a connotation based upon the word itself in the original that indicates Sunlight, clear and pure in the light of day. And that's a beautiful concept. In other words, we can live our lives in such a way because of this book and our application of ourselves to it. We can live lives that are clear and pure in broad daylight, as the expression goes. We don't have to hide our lives uh, in the darkness. We can have our lives examined at high noon on a bright sunny day and we'll be clear and pure. Sinless? No, except through the blood of Christ as we continue to walk in the light as he is in the light and confess our sins. Blameless? Absolutely. Clear and pure. We can know, we can know that we're clear and pure. And that's the meaning of sincere here. And notice something else. And, and this is so vitally important, and without offense, without offense, till the day of Christ. Without offense, without causing others to stumble, without becoming offensive to others, that is, causing others to fall. Now, how important is that? That's vitally important in my speech. That's vitally important in my in my actions, it's vitally important the way I dress, 
It's, it's, it's important in every aspect of my life that I do not act, dress, speak in such a way as to cause others to stumble because that is a serious thing. How serious is it? Listen to what the Lord said in Matthew 18. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now that sobers my thinking. That sobers my thinking because it tells me that I have to make as sure as I can that I'm not doing or saying anything that would become an occasion of stumbling to someone else. What is an occasion of stumbling? Something that I'm doing or saying that would lead someone else to think, well, he's doing that, so must be okay. I'll do it too. And it turns out it wasn't okay for me, and therefore it's not okay for you. And in that case, I've caused you to stumble. And so I need to be very careful about guarding my influence, in other words. Guarding my influence. Guarding my language. And when I am with others in whatever setting, to make sure that there is a consistency in my life, a Christian consistency, that others see. And an example that is worthy for them to follow as I follow Christ. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Paul wrote, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Not just imitate me, but imitate me as long as I'm imitating Christ. And when I mentioned in the sermon this morning about the father who took his daughter to the, to the father-son dance, and then overheard the daughter later praying for forgiveness because of what she had done. It broke his heart, and it led him to repentance. I failed to mention, incidentally, this morning again, that not only did they go to the dance, which they shouldn't have done, not only did they go in worldly costumes based on very worldly characters, which they did, but their costumes were awarded the best costumes there. And their pictures were in the newspaper for all to see. Let's make sure that we do not provide an occasion of stumbling, an offense, and that's the idea of, of offense here as it's used in Scripture. And that is causing someone to sin. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense, till the day of Christ. And then our final verse tonight, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now think about all of these things he's mentioned. Love abounding more and more, knowledge, discernment, so that you can approve the things that are excellent, be sincere, clear and pure, examined in broad daylight, and without offense, not causing anyone to stumble. But the phrase being filled is a participle. 
which means that it is an ongoing process during all of this time while you are increasing in your love and your knowledge and discernment all of this time you are seeking to be filled with fruits of righteousness being filled constantly being filled with the fruits of what righteousness what is righteousness right doing so being filled with the fruits of right doing in other words just doing right making that an ongoing undergirding part of your life it is your life to be filled with the fruits of right being filled participle the idea of ongoing process you remember John 15 and what Jesus uh, shared there with the apostles and thus with all of us when he talked about by this, verse 8 in that context, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. He didn't say by this my Father is glorified that you, somebody can pick a little fruit every now and then out of your life, you know, and say, well, there's something there on the tree today. Wasn't there last week, but I see, I see a little something today in his life that's worth imitating. No, the tree ought to be filled and overflowing, and the fruit ought to be falling to the ground, as it were. That's the image that we see in this phrase, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Our lives are fruit trees that are full of fruit. Full of fruit. But notice the qualifying phrase, which are by Jesus Christ. He's really saying that doing good things is not sufficient at all. There are a great many people in our world who are very philanthropic. They have a lot of money, and they give away a lot of money, and they do a lot of good. And precious people are benefited by that. And you can think of any number of, of situations like that. But are those fruits by Jesus Christ? In other words, are those deeds that are done that do good are they done by those who are in Christ Jesus always no and the tragedy is that while a great many people do a great deal of good unless the fruit is a fruit of righteous living as a result of our being in covenant relationship with Christ then those fruits are not look at the last phrase they are not to the glory and praise of God because we cannot glorify God we cannot praise God unless we are in God and in Christ and while we can certainly be thankful for the good that is done to help make lives better by an awful lot of people who are not Christians the greater tragedy is that the fruit that redounds to our eternal account has to be born as a result of our being children of God and followers of Christ and the whole purpose of them is to what glorify and praise God why are you here tonight why are you alive tonight what is your purpose for living it's to glorify and praise God remember Jesus last some of his last words as he prayed to the father in the garden in John 17 
He prayed, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And that responsibility has been transferred to us by him. That responsibility to glorify him on the earth as long as we live and to finish the work that Christ has given us to do through his word. And is that a burden or a blessing? If it's a burden to you, you immediately need to change your thinking because it's a blessing and a privilege to be able to serve the Lord, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And any life lived outside of that purpose is a life no matter what it accomplishes, that ultimately is a waste. Not only that, but an eternal tragedy because of where the soul will be for all eternity. And so tonight, if you have not begun to live a life filled with the fruits of righteousness because you're not a Christian, we plead with you to become a Christian tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Those are the things you must do to glorify God in becoming a Christian so that you can continue to glorify him after you have become a Christian, after you rise to walk in newness of life from that watery grave of baptism. But tonight, if you know and realize that you have not, even as a child of God, continued to glorify him, and that the world has held too much influence, held too much sway, and led you astray, and you need to come home. Thanks be to God you have that opportunity, and we hope and pray you have that desire, and that you will come. As the prodigal son came home and said to the father, I have sinned, I have sinned. And that kind of genuine repentance will bring complete forgiveness from God Rejoicing here and rejoicing there in heaven over one sinner who repents. If you need to respond tonight, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage you?